The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Morning. Morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you being here this morning. Um, This morning we're completing a series that I've been doing on Berean Distinctives. This will be part five. So far we've looked at free grace. We've looked at divine election. We looked at preterism. And last week we talked about the divine counsel viewpoint. This morning we're going to look at the doctrine of conditional immortality, which opposes the doctrine of hell. Now as always, I'm asking you to be a Berean, not to believe what I say, but to go to the scriptures themselves, study this out, make an informed decision. What comes to your mind when you hear the word hell? I mean, we think of maybe the abode of the condemned souls and the devil, this place of eternal fiery punishment for the wicked after death. We may think of a place of fire and brimstone where the damned undergo physical torment forever and ever and ever. Now, the dictionary says that hell is a place regarded in various religions as a spiritual realm of evil and suffering, often traditionally depicted as a place of perpetual fire beneath the earth, where the wicked are punished after death. The belief that God's final judgment of the unsaved will lead to a state of eternal, conscious, tormenting punishment is firmly entrenched in the doctrinal traditions of the Christian church. It's regarded wisely as one of the defining pillars of conservative evangelical orthodoxy. But is it biblical? We're allowed to ask those questions, you know. I want to begin this morning with a quote I've shared with you many times, but it's a profound quote, I think, by J.R. Packer. Listen to what he has to say. He says, we do not start our Christian lives by working out our faith for ourselves. Boy, that's so important that we get that. It is mediated to us by Christian tradition in the form of sermons, books, and established patterns of church life and fellowship. We read our Bibles in light of what we have learned from these sources. We approach Scripture with minds already formed by a mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come into contact in both the church and the world. It is easy to be unaware that it has happened. It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us. But we are forbidden to become enslaved to human tradition, either secular or Christian, whether it be Catholic tradition or critical tradition or ecumenical tradition. We may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice and excuse ourselves the duty of testing and reforming them by the Scripture. Believer, we have to test everything we believe by the text. The beliefs that we hold to must come from the text. And let me just add here, because this is important this morning, the Hebrew and the Greek text. Too often our translations have skewed what is actually being said in the text. 
And so we need to use many translations and we need to dig into the original languages to find out what the texts are actually saying. And we, then we need to allow the text to just shatter the false ideas that we have. In an article entitled, What is Hell?, published on January 20th, 2014, R.C. Sproul Sr. writes, there is, no there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. It is so unpopular with us that few would give credence to it at all, except that it comes to us from the teaching of Christ himself. I'd like to challenge what Sproul's saying this morning. I would like to say that Christ never taught on hell because there is no biblical concept of hell. Now, he says the teaching of hell comes from Christ himself. Others have said that Christ has taught more on hell than any other subject. Well, we're going to look at Christ's teaching and see if that, in fact, is true. But before we look at Christ's teaching, let's start with the Tanakh and see what we can learn about hell. The word hell is found 31 times in the King James Version Old Testament. Most of the other translations don't have it at all in the Old Testament. All right? But the King James has translated Sheol into hell. All right? Like I said, very few other translations have done that. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. But nowhere do we see Sheol as a fiery place of torment. You'll never get the traditional view of hell from the Tanakh. It just isn't there. So why do the King James translators translate it as hell? Hell is a loaded word, right? You hear that word hell and you think of flames and torture and death and worms eating the bodies and all that. So it's a loaded word. So we got to understand, is there anything behind it at all? And hopefully you'll see that there isn't. King James is more interpreting than translating. Let's look at the Tanakh and see what it has to say about the destiny of the wicked. And then we'll look at the intertestamental literature and then move into the New Testament to try to get a complete picture. Psalm 9, verse 17 in the King James Version says, The wicked shall be turned into hell. There you go, right? It's in the Bible, must be true, it must be hell, must be this bad place of fire and brimstone, right? Again, this is the Hebrew word Sheol. And it gives us images here of torment and stuff. The ESV says this, The wicked shall be returned to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. You see a different picture from those two translations? As I said earlier, nowhere do we see Sheol as a fiery place of torment. Psalm 37 says of David, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. The evildoers, they're going to fade like the grass, and they're going to wither like the green herb. Let's continue on in this psalm. Verse 9 and 10, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at the place, he will not be there. Verse 20 says, But the wicked will perish. The enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now, the word perish here is the Hebrew word avad. 
Now, according to Brown Driver Briggs definition, it means to perish, to go astray, to be destroyed, die, be exterminated. So the wicked are going to be exterminated. And then the word vanish here is from the Hebrew kalah, and it means, again, according to Brown Driver Briggs, to accomplish, to cease, to consume, determine, end, fail, finish. Now let me ask you, do you see any hint of eternal conscious torment in those verses? You don't, you don't get that idea. Let's continue on in the psalm. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. He's no more. Now, Notice that the wicked passed away and then he was no more. The word no more from the Hebrew word ayin, which is from a primitive root meaning to be nothing or not exist. The psalmist doesn't say they passed away and are tormented for all eternity. He said they're no more. Now speaking of the wicked, Job says he will perish forever like his own dung. Now the word perish here, is avad, and it means to perish, to vanish, to be destroyed, to be exterminated. The word dung here is gelil, and it means dung or ball of dung. So he perishes forever like his dung. It's gone, okay? It's just gone. Psalm 58.8. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Psalm 68, 2, As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Now, there are at least 70 metaphors or similes of what the end of the wicked will be like in the Tanakh. So what do these pictures tell us? And here's the question, will reality resemble the picture? I mean, if the wicked are to be eternally tortured in flames, shouldn't the picture somehow reflect that? Shouldn't some of the pictures of the wicked be like, they're going to be like meat on a skewer roasting over an open fire? Or like those boiling in a cauldron of oil? Do you see eternal conscious torment even hinted at? in any of these pictures, these metaphors, these similes. No, we don't see that. The, uh, <coughs> <excuse me. coughs> the idea of eternal conscious torment is not found in the Tanakh. So let me ask you this. What new covenant truth is not found in the Tanakh? I'll wait. What new covenant truth is not found in the talk? Listen, there's only one that I know of. And that is the mystery that Paul talked about. The mystery that Jew and Gentile would be one body in Christ. That was something new that was taught, that wasn't taught in the Tanakh. Other than that, we can go back through the Tanakh and find every doctrine taught. It's not new. So the doctrine of eternal conscious torment if it's true, why wouldn't it be taught in the Tanakh? Let's look at how they viewed the end of the wicked in the second temple 
Judaism or the intertestamental literature. Now, this is the literature written between the end of the, the Old Covenant being written and the New Covenant being subscribed there. And there's a lot of different literature there. And the, the writers of the New Testament relied on this literature very heavily for their writings. All right. So some of the intertestament, the Apocrypha. Are you familiar with the Apocrypha? These are the 15 or 14 books in the Catholic Bible. All right. In between the Testaments. These are not found in the Hebrew Tanakh but they're contained in some manuscripts of the Septuagint have these, all right? Most of these books were declared to be Scripture by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, though the Protestant Church rejects any divine authority that's attached to them. All the references in the Apocrypha to the end of the wicked is that of perishing, except maybe one. And I say maybe because I doubt this reference but it's Judas 16, 17. It says, Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. He will send fire and worms into their flesh, and they shall weep in pain forever. So this seems to talk about an eternal torment. This is the first picture of eternal torment in the literature associated with the Bible. Let's go to the pseudepigrapha. This name means falsely ascribed writings, okay, because the writers usually didn't use their own name. It doesn't mean that these are false writings. Like I said, many of these writings teach us a lot about what they believe. But the literature of the pseudepigrapha is pretty equally split between the teaching of the wicked perishing and being eternally tormented. So now we got both in this, all right? Thirdly, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now... In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd was just hanging out and throwing rocks, and he threw a rock into a cave um, in the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in Qumran, and rather than the sound of a rock or earth, he heard breaking pottery. So they found a collection of some 981 different texts in 11 different caves from the immediate vicinity of the ancient settlement of Qumran in the West Bank. The Dead Sea Scrolls include three types of documents. The earliest existing copies of books from the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Copies of other early works that are not part of the Tanakh, works related to a specific sect that existed at Qumran among the Jews at the time of the Second Temple. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls give a consistent picture of the total destruction of the wicked. They perish. No idea of eternal conscious torment is found in these documents. None. And then we have rabbinic literature. That's the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Mishnah. This literature supports, again, both views. So there, the wicked perishing and eternal torment. So there was no single Jewish view, so to say. So throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we have no hint of the end of the wicked being eternal conscious torment. But once we get in the intertestamental period, we start to see some indication of it. Why is that? Well, we'll talk about that a little later in the message. What does the New Testament say about the end of the wicked? Where did the New Testament writers get their information? Well, the teaching of the apostles was based on Moses and the prophets. Paul said, I teach nothing but the law and the prophets. Their writings reflect the truths found in the Tanakh. Let's look at Matthew 3, 11 and 12. 
John the Baptist says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, what is John talking about here? Is this a reference to hell? I mean, most people say, oh, look at fire, unquenchable fire, that's hell. No, he's talking about the fiery destruction of Jerusalem that will happen in AD 70. John is warning the religious leaders of Israel the fact that the axe is already laid to the root of the tree, referring to God's covenant people, indicates the nearness of the judgment. Now, John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of Yahweh after the 400 years of silence. The Tanakh closes with the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi is one long, terrible impeachment of the nation Israel. Malachi is the prophet of doom. Coming judgment is the burden of the word of the Lord by Malachi. Malachi says this in 3.5. Then I will draw near you for judgment. This is what he's talking about. This is an indictment against Israel. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. And four one it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming shall set them ablaze, he says, then Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, again, people will say, Well, that sounds like hell, doesn't it? No, he says the evildoer is going to be stubble. The references to burning like an oven is speaking of national judgment that is to come upon Jerusalem. This verse points to an approaching crisis in history of the nation when Yahweh would inflict judgment upon His rebellious people. Now, he says the day was coming, the day that shall burn like an oven. This period is more precisely defined as the great and terrible day of the Lord by Malachi 4.5. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. That this day refers to a certain period and a specific event is clear. Yeshua tells us that the predicted Elijah that was to come, he's come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh, he tells us this, in fact, was John the Baptist. Matthew 11.14. And if you're willing to accept it, it is Elijah who was to come. Now, this enables us to determine the time of this reference of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It must be a time period of John the Baptist. It seems clear that the allusion to the judgment of the Jewish nation in AD 70, when the city and the temple were destroyed and the entire fabric of Judaism was dissolved. Let's look at Mark 9.43. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled then with two hands, and go to hell, to unquenchable fire. Now, what is this unquenchable fire that Yeshua talks about? The key to understanding, now remember, Sproul and others are saying that Yeshua talked more about hell than anybody else. So is he talking about hell here? He says, well, the word hell is there. We'll talk about that in a second. But he's talking about unquenchable fire. Well, the key to understanding the phrase fire is found, if we go back to Jeremiah 17.27, 
But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy, and do not bear a burden and enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the places of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So he says, I'm going to kindle a fire, and the fire will not be quenched. Now, let me ask you this. Israel didn't heed the warning. And so as a result, judgment came on Jerusalem and the temple of God, and they were burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. So is Jerusalem still burning today? Because it says it shall not be quenched. Obviously not, okay? An unquenchable fire is clearly doesn't refer to something that's burning forever. So what does the phrase mean? It's a fire that can't be quenched. It burns until its divine purpose has been accomplished. Then it goes out. Once Jerusalem was destroyed, there's no point for the fire to just keep burning and burning and burning. It's, it's accomplished. And it's also saying that man can't extinguish, extinguish or quench the fire, but it does go out when its purpose is finished. Now, he talks about hell here, or does he? See, the word for hell here is Gehenna, which is used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times in the Gospels, and once in James. This is the word that most translations render as hell. So they take the phrase Gehenna, and they render it as hell. When Yeshua used Gehenna, what did he think of? What did the... What did it represent to his audience? The people are listening to him, and he says, he didn't say hell, okay? He said, Gehenna. What did they think of? That's what's important. Well, Gehenna began to be used as a place of human sacrifice in the days of King Ahaz. Gehenna is referred to in Jeremiah 7 as the Valley of Hinnom. It is a passage where people are burning their own sons, their own daughters to human sacrifice. And it's, it's just dedicated to show you how committed they are to the worship of the fire god Moloch. Jeremiah 7, 31 and 32. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. These days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. Now Isaiah had already spoken of Topheth as the fiery destiny of the enemy of God in Isaiah 30, 33. For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire and plenty of wood. The breath of Yahweh, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So in the Tanakh, the valley of Hinnom was associated with the destiny of the wicked, and it was a place of fiery judgment. Isaiah closes his book with these words, 66-24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now this verse, again, is talking about God's destruction of Jerusalem in the generation when Yeshua was crucified. So when Yeshua quotes these words in Mark 9, the worm does not die and the fire will not be quenched, his disciples would have been familiar with these words as referring to national judgment. 
And I want you to make a note of that. Gehenna is a reference to national judgment. So the Valley of Hinnom was the scene of human sacrifices. It burned in the worship of Moloch or Baal, which accounts for the prophecy of Jeremiah that it would be called the Valley of Slaughter under the judgment of God. And this combination of abominable fires and divine judgment led to the association of the valley with a place of perpetual fiery judgment. Gehenna was a reference to the valley of Hinnom and the fiery judgment of God. Gehenna was a place that had become identified in people's minds as a symbol of national judgment. And I think that's how it's used throughout the scripture when it's used. Gehenna is a proper noun just like Jerusalem. And the term hell is not a translation of Gehenna. It's a theologically loaded substitution. It's not a translation. So Gehenna is not a reference to eternal conscious torment. It's a reference to national judgment. It's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And listen to me, the only people ever threatened with Gehenna were the Judean Jews of Yeshua's generation. That's why it's only in the Gospels. So none of the KJV's use of hell have anything to do with the fiery place of eternal torment. So as I said earlier, the word hell should not be in your Bible. And if you see the word hell in your Bible, that is a bad translation. The New American Standard Bible has the word hell 13 times. They messed up 13 times, okay? ESV has it 14 times. They messed up even more, okay? Young's literal translation has it zero times. Oh, they got it right. See, Young's is a literal translation, so he literally says, no, that's not hell, it's Gehenna. Now, some of our listeners have, have last week we were talking about, they were talking to me about the, uh, a translation that's called The Scripture 2009. And they were telling me, you know, this thing is saying everything you're saying, you know. So I'm like, okay, let me look into this. Well, happens to be I had it in my Bible program. I don't know how long it's been there, but. <laughs> so I started looking at it. Huh? Yeah. So, so I started looking at it, and it is amazing translation. It's called the Scripture 2009. Whenever you see the word Yahweh, Yodhe they don't translate it. They just have the Hebrew Yodhe Okay, for Yeshua, they have the word Yeshua. Okay, which I thought was interesting. And I, and I went, I'm going through it, looking up all the places that key me in my mind. You know, this is a wrong translation. That's a wrong. And every place I looked at, except for one. It was translated the way, I thought, you know, they did John 3 the right way. You know, they did a lot of it the right way. The only place I found a problem was uh, Romans chapter 2, where they got the punctuation messed up again, like so many do there. Okay, and they take this to be man's knowledge of God is innate in him. And I disagree with that. All right, I can't talk about that too long. But it's an interesting translation. It really is. And it's worth your looking into. They translate the word hell, nonce. No times, Okay. They just leave it Gehenna, because you, you can't translate that into something like hell. Like I said, hell is a theologically loaded term. So to answer my original question, what's the Bible say about hell? Nothing. 
Nothing. There's nothing about hell in there. If it's translated correctly, you're not going to find the word. Okay, the word is loaded, so let's get the word, let's get out of that word, let's not use it. All right? The better question to ask is this What does the Bible say about the destiny of the wicked? Talks about that, right? What happens to people at death who have not trusted Christ? Now, this the Bible talks about. There are three main views of the end of the wicked. All right? The first one is the one everybody's familiar with eternal conscious torment. I think that's kind of self-explanatory, right? You, you're conscious, you're tormented forever. Got that? Right? Everybody get that? This is traditionally known as hell. This is what the definition or we have put behind hell. Another view is annihilationism. And again, it's just what it says. Uh, people will be annihilated. Okay, there's no judgment. Once people die, they're gone. A third view is... No. See, I titled the message this, so you shouldn't have a clue, but... Conditional immortality. Now think about that, because that means just what it says, too. The gift... This view teaches that the gift of immortality is attached to or conditional upon belief in Yeshua as the Christ. Does that make sense? The conditional immortality view teaches that God will finally and fully bring His enemies to judgment, and then they will perish. So I think if there's a difference between conditional immortality and annihilationism, annihilation would more, don't, some don't even see a judgment. They just, when you die, you're gone. That's the judgment. You're gone. Whereas a conditional immortality would most say, no, God judges these people, but it, it, they're done. They, they're thrown in the lake of fire, they burn up, and it's gone. All right? All right. Yeshua taught his disciples in Matthew 10, don't fear those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, notice that Yeshua didn't use the words punishment, torment, eternal, he uses the word destroy. Apollomi is the word here, which Thayer defines as to destroy, to put out of the way entirely, to abolish, to put an end to ruin. So they're gone. We understand destroy, right? Yeshua speaking here to Jews that were living under the law of Moses, and throughout his ministry he had made continual reference to the judgment or the wrath of God that was to come upon them. The unfaithful Jews, those who rejected him as Savior, would be destroyed, while those faithful remnant would be spared. Now, as the disciples went out, he's telling them, listen, don't fear death at the hands of the unbelieving brethren, all right? Because they're going to they kill you, all right? But don't worry about that. They can rob the body of life. They can do that. But don't worry about that. Fear God who can permanently extinguish your life force by denying you the resurrection from the dead. So that's who you fear. Don't fear those who kill the body. That's all they can do. Fear God because he's able to put that out, extinguish it completely by no resurrection. All right. John 3.16. Everybody knows this first, but we, I think we miss what it says. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't go to hell and burn forever. No, the contrast here 
is perish or have eternal life. Those who trust Christ don't perish. The Greek word perish is apollomi again, which Thayer defines as to destroy, to abolish. Paul taught the same thing as Yeshua did in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Again, we, the comparison here, death and life. The wages of sin is death, not eternal punishment or torment in some place called hell. In the context of Paul's discussion in the letter to Rome, the death refers to the sentence given to Adam because Adam was guilty of the sin. And Paul's message was that a life in Adam would result in the death while a life of faith in Christ brings everlasting life. Again, the contrast is death and life, not eternal torture or eternal life. Now, the Greek scholar and New Testament translator, R.F. Weymouth, how many of you have heard of Weymouth, translator? He says this, pay attention. He says, my mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language that when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. To translate black as white is nothing to this. You see what he's saying? People just, they, these words about perishing, they just ignore that and say, no, it means everlasting suffering. Matthew 25, 46 says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, here we have a comparison between eternal punishment and eternal life. Now, the word for eternal is the same in both cases. Eternal is from the Greek, ionios, from ion. And it means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to an unlimited duration of time. So, people argue, if the righteous get eternal life, then the wicked get eternal punishment. I agree. That's what it says. The question is, what is eternal punishment? As we've seen from other scriptures, the punishment is death. Okay? So what the wicked get is eternal death. It's not talking about the result of the action, or it is talking about the result of the action, not the action itself. The punishment is death. And that is eternal the destruction of the wicked is the lake of fire, and that's permanent. It's a punishment that can't be reversed. The act of punishing will come to an end, but the consequence will last for eternity. They, they get eternal punishment. Again, now the punishment, we think punishment, we're, we're torturing you, you're you know, burning in fire, you know, all this stuff. Okay, no, the punishment's death, and it's eternal. It goes on. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The Greek word perish here, Apollo me, they are defined as destroy or abolish. So you have a contrast again. And here the perishing, those perishing are the non-elect. He tells us, verse 24, But to those who are called, the elect, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So the contrast is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life, while the punishment of the wicked is just as the scriptures state, death, 
which is the opposite of life. As the wicked will have no escape from death, it's an eternal punishment. Jude 1.7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, these are the verses people use to try to prove the doctrine of hell. But notice that the punishment is eternal fire. Now, is this a reference to hell? No. Who or what is it that serves as an example of undergoing the punishment? He said they serve as an example, pointing to what? Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the cities that are an example of the punishment of eternal fire. So let me ask you, are the cities still burning? No. But the fire is said to be eternal because it totally destroyed them. It completed God's purpose. All right, let's look at a, a favorite proof, te- a proof text of eternal conscious torment. Revelation 14, 10 through 11. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and of his image. Well, people, you can see at first glance, that seems to confirm the traditional idea of seething, sulfurous hellfire, merciless, eternal, tormenting, helpless individual souls, right? But I want you to notice the setting of the passage. The context, all right? Context is king. We're all familiar with that, right? We see that the events described here occur in Jerusalem amid the earth-shaking events and disastrous occurring immediately before or at Christ's return. This is, again, talking about the judgment of Jerusalem. This is not talking about hell. This is not talking about the afterlife. This warning describes the punishment that befall all Jerusalem inhabitants who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is another passage speaking of the fiery destruction of Jerusalem. It's again national judgment. It says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. I think you're probably aware that Revelation is the most scriptural book. It quotes scripture more than any other book pulling on scripture, okay? This is a symbolic portrayal of the final reality of the wicked. Is that what this is talking about? Are they going to suffer complete judgment? Well, speaking of the judgment of Yahweh on Edom, back in Isaiah, it says this, All the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Okay, so we got this smoke going up forever. Remember, this is talking about Edom. Let's put these passages together. Revelation says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. In Isaiah it says its smoke shall go up forever. John is no doubt drawing on this text. I don't know of any commentator that won't connect these, okay? Isaiah passage that speaks of national judgment on Edom 
in Revelation, we're talking about national judgment of Jerusalem. It says they have no rest day or night. So what's that talking about? See, this is forever. They're tormented. <coughs> I think this is seen in contrast with the phrase in 1413 where the followers of Christ are promised rest. Revelation 14:13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So the worshipers of the beast will not have a chance to have eternal rest that's promised to the people of God. These don't have any rest. In other words, they're not Christians. They don't get the rest. Now, we must admit this. You ready? It's something you've got to admit. All doctrines will have some texts that appear to be contradictory. Do you agree with that? Pick a doctrine. I don't care what it is. Okay? Pick any of the doctrines we've gone through so far. All right? Sovereign grace. You got verse. No, you got people arguing on every one that pull up verses. And again, we have to, you know, the final test of any exegetical interpretation is the analogy of faith. Okay, how does it fit with the general teaching of Scripture on the subject? There's going to be verses that just seem to contradict. And all of the Tanakh and the majority of the New Testament state that unbelievers will perish, not burn in hell. I had a person ask me, <laughs> don't laugh, if you don't believe in hell, how do you evangelize? Do we scare people into heaven? Is that how we get them there? Let me tell you something, people. Turn or burn is not good evangelism. It's just not. Turn or burn. You got a choice. No, that's not good evangelism at all. And if you go to the book of Acts, which records the evangelistic efforts of the early church, what do you find? Is their preaching all about the fires of hell and how to avoid it? No. There's only one passage in the book of Acts that talks about punishment of the wicked. And the apostles are talking about Yeshua here, and they say, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, that's Yeshua, they don't listen to that prophet, they shall be destroyed from the people. Destroyed here is ex olathruo, which according to Thayer means to destroy out of its place, destroy utterly, to extirpate. You know what extirpate means? Totally do away with. Okay? So those who reject Christ are destroyed. They're not tortured. The apostles never talked about a place like the traditional view of hell. Look at 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The fate of mankind can't be stated any simpler than this. Those who accept Yeshua as the Son of God receive life. The opposite lay in store for those who refuse Him. They will not receive life. And if they don't receive life, which Paul declared to be the victory over death, then they conclude that they will remain subject to the power of death. So, translating the terms Sheol, Hades, Geana, or Tartarus in a manner that denotes a place of eternal punishment is a perversion of the Word of God. 
Those aren't accurate translations of any of those terms. And those are the terms that the translators use to translate into hell. The insertion of the word hell into any Bible verse, I think, can only be for the purpose of leading the reader into falsely held perception of the translator. As with other pagan concepts, hell must be predetermined prior to coming into the Scripture as the original language does not use the term, nor does it present any evidence to support the existence of a place of eternal torment. So where did the traditional view of hell come from? If it's not from the Bible, where did it come from? Well, a study of the early church will reveal that the teaching of hell was foreign to the earliest followers of Christ. The doctrine of eternal torment in hell are the product of a domino effect that began with the acceptance of the pagan doctrine of the eternal soul. Do you see, do you see that connection there? Okay, the, that's a pagan doctrine. Please understand that. The eternal soul. Because once it was accepted that man had a nature that could not die, it naturally followed that his punishment must be eternal. As the souls of the wicked were eternal, punishment must be eternal also, so hell became a place of eternal torment. Now the concept of the soul originated with the Greek philosophers. We've got to understand that, and I think so many people don't get that. That happened some 300 years before the time of Christ. In the second century, it found its way into the early church where it became a fundamental truth of the Roman Catholic Church. And throughout the Nicene Council of 325 A.D., and it was reinforced by other councils that convened over the next 100 years. So where did the teaching that man has an eternal nature that transcends death come from? Well, historical evidence reveals it first appeared among the ancient Egyptians. That's, if you study, you'll find the first time we hear this thing about a soul that lives on forever, the Egyptians came up with it. With the expansion of the Greeks under Alexander, the Egyptian philosophy of life and death became a subject to be examined by Greek philosophers. Plato is credited with modifying the Egyptian philosophy of man having two natures so that it could be incorporated into the religion of the Greeks. Plato taught that man had a nature that lived on after death and went on to a higher plane of being. Plato wrote, The soul whose inseparable attitude is life will never admit of life's opposite death. Thus, soul is shown to be immortal. And since immortal, indestructible. You follow that line of thinking, right? The soul's immortal, can't be destroyed, lives forever. Well, we have to have eternal punishment then. Because we can't do anything with this thing. We believe there's such a thing as death, to be sure. And is this anything but separation of the soul and body? That's what most Christians believe. Being dead is the attainment of this separation. When the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul, this is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. Now, the Greeks prided themselves on having superior intellect and philosophy, all right? And their philosophers had begun teaching an underlying nature of man. And this teaching of the Greek philosophers found its way into Jewish society about 300 years prior to the birth of Christ. 
And through the Pharisees and through the Hellenization movement, it began to come you know, into that time period and then later into the church. The early converts to Christianity brought the Greek philosophy of the eternal soul into the early church. Origen, who was the first person to attempt to organize Christian doctrine into a systematic theology, he was an admirer of Plato. And he believed in the immortality of the soul so that it, it would depart to an everlasting reward or an everlasting punishment at death. In Origen de Principia, he wrote this. He says, The soul, having a substance and life of its own, shall after its departure from the world be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to obtain either an inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions shall be procured this for it, or to be delivered up to eternal fire and punishment, if the guilt of its crimes shall have brought it down to this. So, you know, reading these things, it's funny because this is what most Christians believe today, okay? So hang on. For Augustine, death meant the destruction of the body, but the conscious soul would continue to live in either a blissful state with God or an agonizing state of separation from God. In the city of God, he wrote that the soul is therefore called immortal because in a sense, it does not cease to live and to feel while the body is called mortal because it can be forsaken of all life and cannot by itself live at all. The death, then, of the soul takes place when God forsakes it and as the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. Now, Richard Tarnas, in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, points to the influence. He said, it was Augustine's formulation of Christian Platonism that was permeated virtually all medieval Christian thought in the West. So enthusiastic was the Christian integration of the Greek spirit that Socrates and Plato were frequently regarded as divinely inspired pre-Christian saints. Now, centuries later, Thomas Aquinas, he crystallized the doctrine of the immortal soul in the Summa Theologica. He taught that the soul is a conscious intellect and cannot be destroyed. A few centuries later, the Protestant Reformation generally accepted these traditional views, so they became entrenched in traditional Protestant teaching. So for the most part, this is what the church believes today. But again, my question, is it biblical? I mean, people wouldn't question this. Well, of course, you know, we have a body, we have a soul. You know, they're, you know, they're both immortal. The Jewish Encyclopedia says this. The belief that the soul continues its existence after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical and theological speculation rather than a simple truth and is accordingly nowhere taught in the Holy Scripture. That's interesting, huh? See, the Jews thought totally different, and the church today is heavily influenced by Greek thought instead of Hebrew thought. The International Bible Encyclopedia says this, We are influenced always more or less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. So does the Bible teach that man is an immortal soul? Is man created immortal? Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the term rendered as soul is nephesh. 
which according to Strong's exhaustive concordance means a breathing thing. Nefesh means breath, life. And to translate that soul is, I just think it's a mistranslation. He says, a breathing thing by extension, a living creature, any animal of vitality. So to be alive, that's nefesh, to be alive, to have the breath. Vine's complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words defines nefesh as the essence of life, the act of breathing, taking breath. The problem with the English term soul is that no actual equivalent of the term or the idea behind it is represented in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew system of thought does not include the combination or opposition of the body and soul, which are really Greek and Latin in origin. Now, the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible makes this comment on nephish. The word soul in English thought, it has to some extent naturalized the Hebrew idiom, frequently carries with it the overtones, ultimately coming from philosophical Greek Platonism or Orphism or the Gnosticism, which are absent in Nefesh. Interpreters goes on to say, in the Old Testament, it never means the immortal soul, but it is essentially the life principle or living being or the self as the subject of appetite and emotion, occasionally of volition. In the writings of Moses, the Hebrew term nephesh is used to reference life. That's what it means, life, given to both man and animal without implying any distinction between the two. So nephesh is just the life form. You're alive. It's the life principle. Now, while most believe that Adam had been created as an eternal being, and I'll tell you, this is, this is a debate within preterism, within any of, of the doctrines you want to talk about. You know, people say he was, Adam was created eternal. Well, if he was created eternal, my question is, what was the purpose of the tree of life in the garden? Why did he need that? I think the proof that Adam was created mortal is found in Genesis 3, 22 and 23. Behold, Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So if he couldn't take the tree, what happens? He died. He needed the tree. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, you notice you get in Revelation, and we see the tree of life again in the new heavens and new earth. The tree is back, okay? See, Adam, people, was created mortal. He was always subject to death. However, in establishing the tree of life, God gave him the means to procure everlasting life. But Adam sinned against God, and so he was subject to condemnation. He was subject to spiritual death. And he was put out of the garden. He was put away from God. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on 
imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. At the second coming, the perishable put on imperishable. And the immortal was, immortality was given to believers and only believers. The mortal put on immortality. All non-believers did not have immortality. They perished. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write this. Nowhere is the immortality of the soul distinct from the body taught, a notion which many erroneous have derived from heathen philosophers. He's talking about the Greeks there, okay? Canon Martin Gorge writes, or Gouge writes, when the Greek and Roman mind, instead of the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. We just start at the wrong place. You know, if we think man's immortal, then we got to have a place to put this immortal soul so he can, you know, suffer forever. But if man is not immortal, and if at Christ we believe on Christ, we put on immortality. Now listen, as I said, we got to assume as fact that all doctrines have something that sounds contradictory. And many people want to run to Lazarus and the rich man, right? We got to go to Luke 16, 19 through 31 as a proof that there's conscious life after death and there's a place of eternal torment. Well, first of all, let me just say, I'm, we don't have time to mess with that right now, but let me just say a couple things about it, okay? This is a parable. And parables are designed to teach certain principles. So I have to ask, we have to ask these questions. Do people actually have conversations between heaven and earth? That's what's going on in the parable, right? They're having this conversation. Can those in heaven see people burning in hell? Oh, we're in heaven and, oh, look, there's our mom. She's burning in hell. Wouldn't that be comforting? Huh? From heaven, just look down and see that. Can they actually hear the screams? I mean, you're in heaven, you're like, oh, can you quiet those people down a little bit? What would a finger dipped in water actually lessen the torment of someone in these flames? Have him dip his finger in water, I'm in torment. Oh, that's going to help a lot, right? I mean, the water would evaporate before it got to him, right? Because it's so hot. So we have to think about all these things, people, when, when we're dealing with parables. I don't think Luke's, Luke, uh, Glenn did a message on this so I've done a message on this also. They're on the website. You can look that up. Well, Glenn's is not, but mine is on there anyway. Listen, it is my opinion that the church's doctrine of hell comes from the 14th century Italian poet Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy, with the idea that sinners are tortured in ways that represent ultimate justice for their sins. It's an invention of the Catholic Church to keep people in fear and bondage. Have you ever heard the expression, cold as hell? Where does that come from? That doesn't look too cold, does it? Well, actually, Dante taught that the lowest level of hell, which was reserved for the worst of sinners, was freezing cold. Cold as hell. <laughs> you got hell, you got flames, you got hell, you got freezing. Depends on how bad you are. Uh, okay. Yeah, maybe getting right in the middle there and you'll be 
lukewarm. <laughs> well, hopefully, people, I've given you something to think about anyway, given you some research to do. I don't think the scriptures support the traditional view that non-believers are going to suffer in flames for eternity. Man was not created immortal. Man is mortal, and until he trusts Christ, he puts on immortality. Then he will live forever. The unsaved does not. So you say, well, if this is true, and if the Bible teaches this, why do so many people believe in hell? Do what? Well, that's the thing. It is tradition. It's something is taught. Here's the thing that usually happens. Somebody comes up with a teaching. They discover something. They teach it. And then the people who come after them, they teach what they taught. And they just go back and they keep. And it seems like nobody wants to go back to the original material and examine it and find out, is this really what it says? We just keep following one another. And that's the church. And the preachers are just following, following down the path that S.W. Foss calls the calf path. Here's an excerpt from Foss's poem, The Calf Path. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. People, it is so easy Because, you know, unless we have some reason to challenge that path, we just follow, the path's there, let's just follow it. Well, we have to learn to question things and question everything. You know, examine it and find out, is this what the Bible teaches or is it not? So hopefully I've given you a few things to think about, to study. I would appreciate if you did that. There's, um, you know, you think, well, this is not mainstream. Well, there's several mainstream people who believe this. For example... F.F. Bruce, you ever heard of him? John Stott, Clark Pinnock, N.T. Wright, anybody ever heard of N.T. Wright? Edward Fudge, just to name a few. These guys, they don't believe this. They don't believe this doctrine because they've done some research and they say, no, it's not so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to be able to look at your word. Lord, I thank you that we can question things. The condition of our government today, we're not allowed to question anything or we get censored. But I thank you, Father, that you encourage it, that we be Bereans. We don't just take things we hear. We examine them. We study them. We look at them. We find out if the Bible really lines up with this. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look at the Scriptures, to examine them. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Let me say... I wish I wanted to say this earlier. Um, this was last in the distinctives. Remember, I did an order of importance. So I'm saying this is the least important, okay, to me. All right? In other words, if you believe in eternal consciousness, good for you. Okay? I mean, as long as you feel you support that from the Bible, that's fine. I don't have no, I have no problem. Since I'm not, I can't fellowship with you. You believe in hell. No. I, I just, you know, we're going to find out, Okay? <laughs> <laughs> the truth the truth will be told. I just, um, you know, I mean, people argue against hell saying it's inconsistent with the nature of God. I don't believe that. I just think the Bible doesn't teach it. You know, that's the bottom line. I don't think the Bible teaches it. And again, you know, I'm a little suspect of the Catholic Church, and Dante came up with this whole thing, and all of a sudden it's really helpful. You know, you're scaring people. And so they, they line up. 
They do what you tell them. Can you imagine people using fear to keep people in line? <laughs> oh, there's such a major fear campaign going on with our government right now that it isn't even funny. It isn't even, and true, when the truth all comes out about this, we're going to all just be saying, oh, my word. Total, total fear campaign. But it works. I mean, people, some people are just fear, just so afraid. All right, any questions, comments? Uh, I believe it is in print. Yeah, I believe it's in it's print. Called it's called The Scripture 2009. I know, that's a great title, right? <laughs> but I, you know, I, the eSword has it. Um, my Bible program on my phone, I couldn't find it for that, but I did download the, download the eSword has an application that works with phones, and it's on there. So you can get it on your phone. But yes, they do have it in, in text. I, I, when I Googled it, I found out. You know, I'm Googling it, trying to find out how to get it. And I go to download it in eSword, and I'm like, it says it's installed. And I'm like, well, I guess I already have it. So I didn't really need to download it. So Gary Cole says, remind the listeners and audience of 1 Timothy 6.16 says, only Yeshua, Yahweh, has immortality. That's right. No one is immortal until you get eternal life from God. Okay, does the Satan devil and his hosts also have conditional immortality? Well, according to Psalm 82, like you said, so the Tanakh, Psalm 82 says they will die like men, which just devolved into, but Revelation 12 12 says they will be tormented forever and ever. How can the lake of fire completely destroy wicked men, yet eternally torment spiritual beings? Well, I think spiritual beings are on a different plane, but I don't know that that's talking about, again, eternally tormenting them. I have the idea when something is thrown in the fire, what happens to it? I take massive logs and stuff them in my fireplace, and I love a roaring fire. I mean, it's, it's literally sounds like a freight train coming through the house, and it's popping and sparking. And when the fire is gone, I got a little teeny bit of ash left. It's just, it burns up. Okay, so what is the analogy of the fire? You know, is it supposed to mean goes on forever and ever? What kind of fire, what kind of thing can burn forever and ever? You know, isn't this all, you know, metaphor, simile? Because is there this place where people are actually going and a soul doesn't have a body, right? So how is it suffering in a, in a literal place of fire? Is the fire literal? Or is it, you know, there's just so many questions here, people, that, you know, I, I say that I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know that the Bible teaches that he, God says in Psalm 82, that the gods who have been not judging fairly and justly, that they'll die like men. And if they die like men, then they're gone. They burn up and they're gone. And that's my position, okay? Satan is toast. He went in the lake of fire. He burned up, and he's done. Uh, someone says, angels are immortal, right? Yet they are spirit, right? I believe that humans have a spirit soul that God can either destroy or grant immortality. Well, that's a Greek idea. So I agree, hell is an eternal conscious torment, but I disagree that humans don't have a spirit that transcends physical life. Okay, you're welcome to disagree. That, that's fine here, you know. 
A believer's spirit is granted immortality, and non-believers are destroyed. Thoughts? Well, that I gave you all my thoughts just in the last hour, okay? And I don't think, you know, we have a Greek mentality. You got a body, you got a soul. The Hebrews didn't think on that plane at all. That is totally Greek. The Hebrews said, you are alive, you have a life principle. At death, that life principle is extinguished, and unless God gives you the resurrection, you're gone. Well, you know, we have a lot of different names for it, okay? They call it, you could call it soul, you could call it spirit. And you, it's interesting in the translations, they'll take the word suke, soul, spirit. Suke can be breath, wind, or soul. They translate it different ways. Sometimes in the same text, they'll translate it soul and then breath or spirit. Or, it's the same as nephish. It just means breath, breathing, life principle. We have the life principle. Yes, it's, you want to call it spirit? It's more than just physical, but when you die, if you're a believer, of course, you've already been resurrected. You have that eternal part of you that will go on forever. Cheryl? If it's like breath and we die, how does it keep breathing? Well, no, it doesn't unless God gives resurrection, and that's the whole thing. You know, God would resurrect, and you would have life. Okay? Now, to believers, we've already been resurrected. Okay, in Christ, we receive eternal life. We receive eternal life when we put our faith in Christ. We're not going to receive eternal life later. We already have it. Okay, so when this body dies, I believe we receive a spirit body. I don't know what that is. I can't, I can't wrap my head around a spirit body. But I think, I think the scripture teaches it, okay? It's not just we're going to float around like a mist, okay? We're going to have a body, a spiritual body that can do different things. Jeff? So does that mean in the resurrection of Daniel, he resurrected the unjust just snuck him back out? Yeah, I think the unjust were resurrected to stand judgment and then thrown into the lake of fire. I mean, you know, that's what I said. The, the conditional immortality view holds that men are judged, sinners are judged for their evil. Okay, they stand before God. That's the great white throne judgment. They stand before God. They answer. Here's what you did. Here's why this thrown in the lake of fire. God. Gary? Um, your text, from that person said, I thought that you said, read that they said angels were immortal. Right. But, I mean, weren't they created? I don't know what I'm saying. It just seemed to... Yeah, there's a difference between everlasting life and immortality okay to god's the only one who exists forever okay always has been always will be people come into being angels gods came into being but yes they generally they're created that way to live forever but god can you know when they're disobedient as he says in psalm 82 you'll die like men What does Isaiah 66, 24 mean? We talked about that in the message. I, I think that's just a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, this is, you know, the scriptures are pretty much centered on Jerusalem as the people of God and God's recalling of the nations. But we get to the book of Revelation. Revelation is just all about the, it's a divorce decree of God giving to Israel and he's going to wipe out Jerusalem. That's what it's about. And so those texts that sound like you know, it's going to go up forever and ever. Again, we read it, Isaiah 34, Edom, smoke rises up forever and ever. That's not happening, people. The smoke's not still rising up. 
It was destroyed, and it's done. It was. We could find Edom. Too. We could find what? Could find Edom. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> Someone says I have noticed that a lot of predators take the universalist view, and I don't think that holds water. Just not sure what to say. Oh, it does not absolutely hold water, not a drop of water, okay? The universalist approach is an attack on the gospel of Christ. Let me be clear about that, okay? You don't need a gospel. You don't need anything. If everybody's going to heaven, okay, then there is no gospel, okay? Because the Bible says very clearly you have to believe, you have to trust in Christ. The universalist says, no, you don't. You don't have to believe in Christ. You've already been saved. You just don't know it yet. No. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks about the damned. It talks about the saved. There's a distinction. And unless you trust Christ, you will be damned. Am I clear on universalism? Yeah. <laughs> well, because, you know, the, whoever just wrote that is right. That universalism, there's a lot of preterists getting sucked into universalism. I don't understand that, okay? I don't understand it at all. But there's a lot of preterists going that direction and say, oh, yeah, everybody's saved. Everybody, you don't know you're saved. That's the only difference. You just got to find out someday. Maybe you don't find out. Maybe you find out after you die. Oh, I'm saved. Right. And again, they got some verses that they twist to say, see, this verse teaches universalism. No, it doesn't. What about all the verses that says you have to believe on the Lord? That's, there's a difference, people. You got sheep and you got goats, okay? The sheep are going on to everlasting life. The goats are going to be destroyed, okay? All through the Bible, he makes that comparison. Eternal life and death is, is not, it's not a universal perspective at all. Uh, Junior says... Yeshua paid for all the sin of man once and for all, yet the doctrine of hell says men pay for their own sin. Make no sense. Well, I kind of disagree with you there because I think the, the Bible teaches that Christ died for his elect. I take the position Christ did not die for everybody. But you're right. If Christ did die for everybody, then nobody would go to hell. Then you'd have universalism. And again, that's another principle there. They say, okay, Christ died for everybody. No, he makes it really clear he died for his own, for his elect. In John 17, he said, do not pray for the world. I pray for those you have given me. There's a select group, an elect, that God gave to the Son as a love gift for his suffering on the cross. Huh? That's a thinking. Yeah. Stan? says they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. Well, people do. Okay, good. Someone says that the that's good. Cleared that up. I got a question here. Hey Dave, I listened to your message on Acts 1, 9 through 11 on the bodily assertion of Yeshua. Or was it spiritual? Since the epistles make much of the bodily resurrection of Yeshua and his physical presence with the disciples, if his ascension was spiritual, what happened to Yeshua's body? Um, I, uh, I think that Christ was raised in the self-same body. There's a song out right now. 
I don't know the name of it, but it says, The Only Scars in Heaven. It, I love the song, but theologically it's incorrect. Okay? But what it's referencing is the only scars in heaven will be Yeshua's scars. I disagree with that. He doesn't have any scars. There's no scars in heaven. Yeshua was raised in the self-same body he died in. Okay? In the ascension, that body was transformed into a spiritual body. That's the position I hold. Okay? That's why when he showed him, look at my hands, look at my feet, the scars were there. He wasn't in a spiritual body. People say, well, that was a spiritual body. So that means when we get spiritual bodies, we're going to have the same scars, the same pains, the same aches. Negative. I do not like that idea. <laughs> and that makes it so, okay? Forget about that being Berean stuff. <laughs> I said it, that settles it. <laughs> You know I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> okay, I think we're done. Any other questions here? We got this. All right. So I, I know this is attacking a fortress that the church holds so nearly and dearly. And, and I'm sorry if I, you know, ruin the fact that people don't get to burn forever. I know it's a sad thing, isn't it? I know. How I don't know how we'll win any more people without the doctrine of hell on our side, but we'll do the best we can. Let, let's soldier on and do the best we can, okay, without that doctrine. That's right. What'd you say? Uh, oh, we're late. Ah, man. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? Hey, Bob, come on up here and close in prayer for us, okay? We're going to just wind this up right now. We've gone a little long. So thanks for being here. Appreciate you watching. Listen, I really appreciate your questions. I'm happy to do that. And the reason for the question and answer is, I know I say stuff, my mouth goes in one direction, my brain goes in another. And so one of the purposes is, hey, you said this, did you mean this? You know, or to get clarification on what I did say. I want to clear it up. I, I, want to don't, I don't want to be as clear as mud. I want you to understand what I'm saying. So that's the purpose of the question and answer. And thanks for sending the questions in. Hopefully it, it helps clear some things up.